everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Wharton Tech Talks. I'm Zoe. And I'm Leon. And today we are talking with Sasha Siddhartha. Sasha is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Thrive Market, an online platform providing affordable and socially conscious access to healthy groceries. Thrive Market has received recognition from Fast Company, Time Magazine, and more. Siddhartha has over 20 years leading emerging and established teams and is a master at driving growth and scaling technological enterprises. Thank you for joining us today, Sasha. Can you tell us where you're calling in from? Yeah, thanks for having me. So excited to be on the podcast. I am based in Los Angeles, California, and I'm sitting in a little phone booth and we work in El Segundo. So, uh... Nice. We're glad to have you. Can you start by telling us a little bit about how Thrive Market was founded and how has your role in the company changed over time? Yeah. So Thrive was founded in 2014. So we've been in business almost 10 years now. Our original founder, Gennaro Lovelace, grew up in a communal farm in Ojai, California, where they used to buy national organic products in bulk through a distributor account they had for the whole community. This is not a wealthy community, and it really kind of triggered an idea in his head that natural organic products should not be sold at a significant premium to conventional, more processed equivalents. But he soon got to realize that through the power of community and the power of the group, they were able to make these products kind of affordable and accessible for people who otherwise wouldn't have. That grew the idea of how do you create a platform by which using the power of bulk buying, we're able to make national organic products easy, affordable, accessible to people. Now, the business went through a number of evolutions in the early days. The very first incarnation of this was very much a true group buying concept, so similar to a Groupon for healthy living, where you'd have you know, a drop and people would sign up to buy. It became pretty obvious pretty quickly that that model did not work for grocery shopping, and no one was going to wait two weeks for the drop to be over to get their product. We evolved it to focus on the concept of membership as the unifying principle to bring the group together. So today, the business is still a $60 a year membership similar to a Costco that you sign up for. It's annual. And through that, we're able to offer member-only pricing to our members and ship these products to them in every zip code to the lower 48. I signed up based on having met uh, Gnar and Nick, our other co-founder, in the summer of 2014. I just rolled off my last business and was looking for my next venture. I wanted to work on something that had real scale potential that was in e-commerce because that's what my last company was doing and I had some level of expertise, but also wanted to work on something that was in a domain and an industry that was more closer to my personal interests. So health and wellness has been important to me my whole life. And I wanted to be in a business where I could leave a positive legacy and feel good about the work I was doing. So that brought me on and we launched the business in November 2014 and kind of was off to the races. So my role has definitely evolved. So my overall charter is the same. So I'm chief technology officer. So my mission is to connect business strategy and customer experience with technology strategy. So how do we use the digital experience and technology and tools to create an amazing experience for our members and help grow the business? How that's come into execution has changed a lot. So in the early days, I'm sure most listeners know at an early state startup, you wear a lot of hats as a founder and an early employee. So you know, I was writing code, making sure the website was stayed up. I set up our first warehouse, worked on kind of early marketing programs, did a lot of, a little bit of everything at least. Since then, we've been fortunate enough to be able to scale the business up and hire an amazing team of leaders and employees. So my focus today is on product management, user experience, software engineering strategy, IT, security, and business strategy. So we've got great folks that handle all the rest of it, and we've been able to scale and build a great team. That's where I'm at today. 
Sasha, going back to the beginning, Thrive Market is focused on delivering high quality, healthy food options in an eco-friendly manner. Can you talk a little bit about how these principles of sustainability and accessibility has impacted your tech strategy and product roadmap? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, the mission of the company written out is make healthy and sustainable living easy and affordable for everyone. And we've tried from a product technology perspective to not just have those be words in a wall. We've actually interpreted it as literally as possible. So we wanted to define what does healthy mean? What does sustainable mean? What does easy mean? What does affordable mean? And what does everyone mean across the business and certainly within product and tech? Now, what that's meant at a business level, which reflects in our technology, is eliminating the barriers that prevented people from consuming this category of products habitually. So those are barriers of price, they're barriers of geography, and they're barriers of, let's call it information or cognitive load. So even if you can you have access kind of physically and financially, how do you get people to make the right selections? So in terms of price, we developed a membership model right off the bat and built all the tech and tools around that to help our members derive overwhelming financial value on the platform. In terms of geography, we've owned and operated our own fulfillment infrastructure from day one to be able to deliver every zip code in the country, including our dry goods, our frozen fulfillment supply chain, and so on. So a lot of work that went into warehouse management software, inventory management software, routing, temperature control, the actual nuts and bolts of making sure that grocery products can be delivered fast, efficiently, and in a sustainable manner to a really broad radius. And I think we're probably one of the few online grocers today that really has a true national footprint versus only operating in major urban geos. Probably the biggest focus is on the information, the cognitive load part. So how do we create a great user experience that helps people shop this category? So e-commerce, particularly when we started in 2014 for groceries, was very much the same e-commerce that people use to sell books and shoes for 20 or 30 years now. We knew that it was a great start, but not necessarily the right foundation for us to gonna hang our hat on. So we've invested a lot in machine learning and personalization, unique UX. About 90% of our members go through an onboarding questionnaire to talk about their household composition, their dietary preferences, ingredient and allergens that they're sensitive to, their health goals, the types of products they like. And we use that to take them through guided onboarding experiences to help them build their first basket of products. For example, on an average e-commerce site, you're buying one or two items at a time. Our average member is checking out with 14 or 15 items at a time. So we've really got to help guide them through that experience and make sure that the relevancy of everything we're presenting to them is top-notch. Beyond that, we added the ability for them to shop by 90-plus diets and lifestyle filters. So it's just really easy for people to make decisions on what the right product is, given their personal goals and values, without having to go and read an ingredient fact panel and comb through dozens or hundreds of ingredients to make sure the product is appropriate for their needs. We built a unique auto ship, kind of a recurring shipments experience that's been tailored made for grocery. So very different from kind of a traditional subscribe and save model where it's set it and forget it. We built it to help people maintain a healthy habit while recognizing that no two grocery trips are exactly the same. So we need the ability to allow our members to customize and tweak each order that comes to them really easily. And finally, on the sustainability side in particular, this is something I'm really excited about that's actually in flight that we'll see launching over the next few months, is helping our members understand the benefits and positive impact they're having by being members of the Thrive Market community. And this is the really utilitarian values of what's their financial savings, what are their time savings from not having to stand in lines at the grocery store, but also how much are they able to reduce their carbon footprint? How much waste is diverted from landfill by shopping from our platform? How many dollars are they contributing to raising food equality through our Spread the Health program? What are the environmental and social causes that they're supporting by purchasing particular brands on Thrive Market? So being able to present that information to them, A, is 
critical to helping them feel good about their membership and really helps provide value that goes beyond kind of the boring utility of grocery shopping and really makes them feel like they're part of a community. I could go on about this, but those are a few highlights. That's great. I think we'll want to go deep into each of those. But first, you talked a little bit about the warehouse fulfillment technology. That can get really complicated. How did you decide to own that piece of the value chain, especially the technology there? Yeah, I mean, the adage in technology is you should build the stuff that is creating differentiated value and hopefully buy everything else that's commodified. In our case, we had strong conviction that having best-in-class fulfillment operations was a differentiating factor for us in the business. And again, and this is still true today, but certainly back in 2014, no one was shipping groceries across the country safely, where your jar of pasta sauce doesn't come kind of broken and spilling all over the box sustainably without extensive use of styrofoam or bubble wrap or other non-recyclable materials and cost efficiently because it is a relatively low margin category and the products are bulky and heavy. So we had to be incredibly efficient to be able to build a sustainable business. So we made a decision to invest in both the physical fulfillment operations and having the staff to invest in fulfillment technology from more or less day one of the business which certainly came with some significant short-term cost and capital investment. It's a lot easier to go to an established third-party company and just tell them to ship your product. But we would never be able to scale the business if we'd gone that route. We wouldn't have had the margin profile necessary if we had to pay a middleman to handle fulfillment. We wouldn't have been able to build the custom features like temperature control and custom routing that allow us to ship product during heat waves or snowstorms. And we wouldn't have been able to maintain the quality of service that our members expect from us because no third party is going to bring the same level of ownership to fulfillment quality that our own teams would. So in retrospect, it sort of feels like a no-brainer, but it was definitely a tough decision to start because it's a big upfront investment and certainly did not come without a share of painful learnings as we figured this out one step at a time. Sasha, before you were speaking a little bit about designing the customer experience and when someone initially signs up, getting to understand their diet and lifestyle. And here we're very big on analytics. So I was wondering, can you share a little bit more about how you guys are thinking about customer data and using that to make Thrive a better and stronger platform? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few angles to this. One is as a company internally, we're very much data and metrics informed, not necessarily kind of blindly driven, but we invest a lot of energy in gathering and analyzing as much quantitative and qualitative data as possible to understand whether we're meeting the needs of our members and if we're not, where are we falling short and importantly, why. I think that mix of qual and quant is really critical there. So almost every part of the customer journey is pretty rigorously instrumented. So we have clickstream analytics and reporting and dashboards and so on that'll let us monitor our customers' behavior, both in aggregate and also follow individual customer journeys to look for hotspots, parts of the user experience where they're getting stuck, signs of frustration, where they're kind of rage-clicking on buttons that aren't responding the way they would expect them to, and so on. That data feeds back into our internal team's operations, particularly on the product and user experience side, to make sure that we're understanding what parts of the customer journey are going really smoothly and what parts require investment and remediation. Now we're complementing that with extensive qualitative feedback. So we survey our members in mass really frequently. We kind of collect net promoter score data. We get feedback on most orders that go out the door. We're getting verbatim feedbacks and in their interactions with our customer service team. We're conducting usability interviews to talk to real members and prospective members in smaller groups and in long form. Each of these data sources has its own set of applications, but the goal is to get a complete picture of how people are responding to the product or would respond to the product. 
And we believe it's really critical for us because as a consumer business, the expectations are growing rapidly. You've got businesses like Amazon that have set a very high standard in terms of customer experience. And we're going to be expected to meet or exceed those standards as a membership platform and do so in a domain where we're also trying to innovate and build experiences that are unusual and that customers may not have seen before. So we can't afford to go into it blind. You know, we had to be really reality-based in terms of the decisions we make as well. Like We all have internal opinions and biases, but one of our core company values is member first, which means listening to what the customer tells us is absolutely critical to our long-term success. And continuing on the same topic, I know AI is a really big theme that's been talked about lately. So is AI something that you guys are thinking about at Thrive? And are you able to share a little bit about how you are incorporating that into your strategy? Sure. I mean, you can't throw a brick without hitting a chat GPT prompt today, but (laughs) we've been focused on AI and machine learning since the very early days of the business. Certainly as my chief data scientist likes to remind me, like this is not new. I think it's definitely in the public sphere right now, but it's been part and parcel of our strategy since, I mean, I'm not quite day one, but very early on. There's a few aspects to it. One is, and probably the most critical one, is the personalization of the customer experience. So everyone's definition of healthy living is a little bit different, and each one of our members is unique, and they deserve a truly an experience that speaks uniquely to them. To that effect, and some of the problems we've had to solve are, you know, how do we traditionally gather data by observing customer behavior, and then you can kind of replay that to them with a more personalized journey. We've got a real cold start problem because we're a new business, and we need to be able to provide high-trust experience from day one. Hence the idea of an onboarding questionnaire that the vast majority of our members go through so we can at least gather some baseline data to use to service their experience. So from there, you know, they're answering these questions about their households and diets and so on. And they're being guided through the shopping experience, either by being presented the most relevant categories and products that meet their needs, or what we're testing into now is actually assisting the process of building their first cart based on their inputs. From there, we're in a position to be able to gather a tremendous amount of incremental data based on the actual use of the platform compared to what they told us. Mix of those implicit and explicit signals allow us to feed one-to-one personalized experiences on most aspects of the shopping journey. So our search, our browse, the products that are presented to you in promotions, a lot of our navigational elements are all one-to-one personalized. The majority of our marketing communications are driven by personalization as well. So we don't want to be sending marketing promotions about meat to our vegan or vegetarian customers. Being in tune with the needs of our members and using AI and machine learning is, I wouldn't say it's quite expected in the e-commerce industry today, but in our domain, it's really critical because user preferences are relatively durable in many areas. So if you're sort of vegetarian today, you probably will be tomorrow. And purchase frequency is high. And the number of units going to the order are high. So all those mean, theoretically, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the customer's behalf. So narrowing down the scope and presenting them, the products, brands, categories, kind of catalog segments, promotions, what have you, that are most relevant to them is really, really critical to, on one hand, building trust as a platform that kind of speaks to them, but also to just reduce the amount of actual work and the number of clicks they need to go through to be able to purchase on the platform. Now, what has changed more recently with the advent of GPT and LLMs is, you know, we're starting to think about AI more seriously as an enabler for business efficiency. So previously, like the level of tooling, if you look back five years ago for internal business processes that are leveraging AI and ML, we're we're a lot more limited. But now, you know, we're starting to see great applications in creative and content production, in our customer service tools, even in software engineering efficiency, where AI can be a real enabler to help us get tremendous leverage from the team that we have. That's more recent. 
But looking ahead, I think this is going to be such a transformative area for technology. So we're probably not going to stay on the very bleeding edge because I think there's also a lot of noise out there right now. And we really want to focus on solutions that are durable for our needs. But we're certainly going to keep our ear to the ground. Yeah, the amount of data you guys must have on customers at the scale you're at must be a treasure trove to feed into some of these new AI models. And like you said, it probably pays dividends in the personalization you can give them. Switching tracks a bit, we'd love to tap your knowledge on your career so far and how you've thought about leadership. You've talked a little bit about this, but excluding Thrive Market, you've actually founded a number of companies throughout your career. Could you talk a little bit about that and one key lesson about from entrepreneurship that it's taught you? Yeah, I've had the fortune to be able to pursue an entrepreneurial career for the past. Now it's been like 12, 13 years. And prior to that, certainly, even though it's kind of working full-time at Microsoft, I'd be able to dabble and do things on nights and weekends where I could. And it's been an amazing journey. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Could have a few things that stand out to me. Or one is that just having the right business model is critical. I can look at Thrive Market today versus my last business, which was in the, the fashion technology space, as sort of a clear example of that. While we're executing at a very high level of Thrive and did a great job of the last business as well, like one was a much more niche concept where the addressable market definitely capped out. There were some fundamental structural issues to the business that prevent us from scaling it up and a lot more, a lot more challenges that we've seen, seen at Thrive, right? At Thrive, scalability was built into the model because we're playing in a huge space. Product market fit was something that we had evidence of very early in the business. And then it allowed us to really focus on execution excellence, but also not run into a ceiling. So it's one of those things where before you start a company, certainly worth the extra time to diligence the concept and be really intellectually honest about the sector you're entering into, the value proposition you're providing customers and so on to have real conviction around it. And then get out there and validate that as quickly and cheaply as possible so that you can have conviction that when it is time to invest resources, you're putting it into something that has real growth potential. That's one key thing. The second one, this is kind of a bit of a little cliche, but it's like investing in the right people or everything and investing in the right people at the right time is everything. We've done a good job of that in some areas of Thrive. There's definitely counterexamples as well. And certainly in my last business, it was a big learning, but you need the right people for the right time. So you don't want to hire people before there's a role for them to perform. You don't want to hire people who are either too senior or too junior to do the job. So fit is key, both from a skill sets perspective and then also from a cultural perspective. So a lot of the success we've seen and that I've seen as an entrepreneur has to do with being able to bring together the right team that collaborates effectively, has the right mix of skill sets and the right alignment and passion of what you're doing to get you there. And last but not least, you just sort of enjoy the process. Whether the business does well, like even in the most successful businesses, you kind of zoom in far enough and there's so many ups and downs and so much variability in terms of how each day goes. And if you're a you know, if you're a founder, you take that stuff very personally in most cases and like you're sort of on an emotional roller coaster at all times of day and night. And you have to kind of enjoy living in that mode. If that is inherently stressful and drives a ton of burnout, like it's just not a sustainable career and there's probably better things to be done with one's time. And if you're overly focused on a particular outcome, the reality is like every outcome is just like a milestone and then there's more outcomes that have to be achieved. So you got to really enjoy the ride. That's my pearls of wisdom for now. Thank you. I know there's definitely a few topics you mentioned that we'll want to circle back on, but going back to something you said even earlier in our discussion about wearing different hats throughout the Thrive Market journey, can you share a little bit about how your leadership style has changed over time and how you're continuing to adapt as Thrive scales? 
Yeah. Sort of summarize, like, it's a lot of, like, learning through, learning through mistakes, learning through trial and error. I've been fortunate enough that the progression of team sizes and business success have sort of come at a very gradual ramp through as my career and kind of I have matured as a human being. So I was not someone stuck running a $10 billion business at 22 years old or something. So I can only imagine the kind of challenges that someone in that space would have faced. So I've been doing this for a long time. I started off and everyone does at that early stage businesses being very, very hands-on. I'm still very much on the hands-on spectrum when it comes to what you'd kind of imagine from an executive sort of the blessing and curse of being close enough to the matter to be dangerous. And I think early on, your approach tends to be that you're doing a lot and you're building teams around you and you sort of hope that people observe your behavior and emulate it and that'll sort of scale out. And I think that happens to a degree. But as an organization scales, your focus and my focus is gone from that sort of strictly lead by example perspective to really focus on the right structures, focus on developing and hiring the right people, identifying and leveraging their unique strengths, and really providing them the broad context they need because there's too much complexity and too many people to be kind of in the thick of everything, kind of showing folks the right way to do it. Some of that has to be inherent. And my skill as a leader is in identifying and developing and nurturing that talent and pointing in the right direction. It is sort of an opposing force where Part of this idea of creating a culture of ownership and a successful scaled organization is on one hand, you're giving people a lot more autonomy. But on the other hand, you are continuously raising the bar on what success looks like as the organization scales and the standards and the scrutiny you're subjected to also and consumer expectations all grow. That's been an interesting challenge and it really you know, boils down to, again, being able to find and develop amazing people and provide them the motivation and the information and understanding they need to be able to make great decisions themselves. But then also being able to recognize that you've got to be able to hold people accountable for the quality of their decision-making and execution, which again, at early stages doesn't tend to happen as much. You let a lot more slip and it's okay because it's a small team and kind of everyone's in the thick of it and there's a lot more unknowns. As the organization scale, you know, having real accountability is the only way to make this sustainable. That's sort of how my philosophy has gone. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of trial and error involved with entrepreneurship. But are there any key drivers in your decision making as you've continued to grow and have been quite successful in the industry? Yeah, I think it's seek a variety of inputs, as many inputs as possible in that. It's a broad term, right? Look at a lot of data, again, both quantitative and qualitative data. Talk to a lot of people. Look at what else is out there in the industry and use all of that and combine that a little bit with your gut to go in a certain direction. Maybe it's not the most satisfying answer, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, like you're always going to make decisions based on incomplete information, but being as disciplined as possible at looking at what facts you have available to you to make that decision, you know, hopefully improves kind of the average quality of the decision you make, which hopefully improves kind of your average compound rate over time of driving successful outcomes. Makes sense. Sasha, we're going to pivot quickly to some rapid fire Q&A, hopefully some lighter, more fun questions. First one, we'd love to hear about your first job. It's a fairly boring. To give you a little background on myself, I grew up with my mother as a diplomat and we traveled around a lot when I was a kid. I was always a foreigner in every place I lived. So the first time I actually like held a job legally, certainly it was a software internship after my sophomore year of college. I was actually at Infosys, which is an IT consulting firm in India. So they they flew like 15 predominantly U.S., but also like European college students in for like a three-month rotational program in Bangalore and in India. And it was like an absolute blast and still close friends and some of the people I met then. So it was a memorable summer. That's really awesome. What is your favorite product that's sold on Thrive Market? 
I keep coming back to our olive oil. So our extra virgin olive oil, which is sourced from a single family farm in Crete, which presumably like every single family farm in Greece or Crete and so on, like lays claim to having the oldest olive tree in the world, which it looks large enough that you'd believe it. But it just checks all the boxes for me in terms of what is great about the business and our brand. It's got an amazing story behind it. It's, you know, absolutely no compromise at literally a global scale in terms of quality standards. You know, the team did an amazing job with the packaging. So it's really kind of counterworthy and I've given so many of these away as kind of gifts in lieu of bottles of wine to people. So it's sort of at that bar and it's still value priced. I think it's like 15 bucks for like a pretty large bottle, which compared to what you find at the grocery store at the same caliber is like an absolute deal. It's one of our first products that we launched under our Thrive Market brand. So really, really proud of the work the team's done on that one. Do you have any daily habits, any tips that help you lead a healthy lifestyle? My stuff's pretty boring. It's like prioritize sleep, eat a healthy diet, exercise, kind of get the fundamentals right, which I think in some ways is really hard for people in, in entrepreneurship to do. Like it's definitely a culture that sort of values like you're working like 80 hour weeks or 90 hour weeks or whatever it is, sleep three hours a night and like, you know, live off God knows what. But I've found that it's like critical to like feel good physically to be effective certainly effective at work, certainly be an effective leader and kind of interact with people in a positive way. The other bit that it's probably taken me longer to orient myself around is I think it's just really important to balance one's professional passions with passions outside of work, like investing in relationships, being present with family. I'm a new parent. I've got a one-year-old now and like there's an hour a day where like my phone disappears and I'm going to like spend time with her and be present and enjoy that. And those experiences are really energizing and again kind of provide the balance and the contrast to my role and kind of the mindset I have during the workday that again make me feel more well-rounded, healthier, make everything that else that I do feel more enjoyable and sustainable. And this question we like to ask all of our guests at the end of our episodes, what is your boldest prediction for the next five to 10 years, even if it seems like a total long shot to everyone else? I spent a little bit of time thinking about this one. So I think mine are going to be, again, a little more commodified. I'm not sure if I could pick one that's too contrarian. A couple I think are that I think over the next five to 10 years, our interactions with AI and kind of sentient human beings are going to essentially be interchangeable. Like it's going to blend in a pretty dramatic way. Like I don't think we have seen a technology that's come as much into the public zeitgeist as quickly and has had as broad a set of applications as I've seen with AI of late. Now, some of this stuff is going to be a flash in the pan, but I think the potential to disrupt essentially every industry, every aspect of our existence and for society that consumes a remarkable amount of content online, like those lines are already getting blurred in such a dramatic way. The other one, which is a prediction or certainly a hope, is that we make we make more progress in fighting climate change and working towards sustainable energy over the next 10 years than we have in the history of humanity. And that's one where there's certainly evidence that the investment dollars are heading in that direction. But it's one of those that's if it doesn't come true, like we're in trouble. And it's almost an imperative that we work overtime to change change the trends that have come to bear over the last 150 years and certainly over the last 50 years, especially. So one that I'm very hopeful about. Those are mine. Do those intersect at all? Do you see AI helping the fight a climate fight? Absolutely. I mean, information is power. I haven't spent time thinking about that intersection, but the ability to look at massive data sets 
at scale, mine them, look for insights, look for opportunities, should make. This is why I think stuff so powerful is the applications are so widespread. So I imagine there's folks out there in the industry who can provide a ton of detail on this, but I can't imagine it does not rapidly accelerate our ability to converge on solutions to complex problems in that space. Makes sense. Well, that wraps up our interview for today. Thanks so much, Sasha, for joining us. And we look forward to following Thrive Market and its growth for years to come. Awesome. Thanks, Zoe and Leon. It's a pleasure to be on. Mm-hmm.